Soon afterwards, the cloud began to descend and cover the sea. It had already surrounded and concealed the island of Capri and the promontory of Mycenaeum. My mother begged me to leave her and escape as best I could, but I absolutely refused, taking her by the hand and making her to hurry along with me. Ash was already falling by now, though in no great quantity. Then I turned and saw a thick black cloud advancing over the land behind us like a flood. Let us leave the road while we can still see, I said, or we will be knocked down and trampled by the crowd. We had scarcely sat down when darkness came upon us. Not such as we have when the sky is cloudy or when there is no moon, but that of a room when it is shut up and all the lamps put out. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And if you know your ancient Roman literature, you might have guessed from that opening that today we're going to be talking about the great eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Uh, this is something that I've wanted to do an episode on for a long time, mainly because I love some of the ancient Roman uh, original documents that we're going to be reading from today. They, they are like so crisp as a descriptive source of this ancient catastrophe that happened in the year 79 CE. Yeah, this is a, this is a topic I'm excited to get into as well because I, I definitely have strong childhood memories of, of course, being fascinated with volcanoes. Volcanoes along with dinosaurs are just part of being a child. But then also I remember uh, having a national ge- copy of National Geographic that had these, all these beautiful haunting photographs of uh, the remnants of Pompeii, uh, the, the, the victims of Vesuvius. Yeah. Uh, It's funny you should bring up dinosaurs because I think this was sort of in the back of my mind and I hadn't brought it to the front until you said that. There's a weird way that uh, in a lot of the paleo art that I grew up with as Mm -hmm. a child, I think we've actually mentioned this on the show before, that dinosaurs are often depicted with volcanoes currently erupting in the background. Do you know what I'm talking (laughs) about? Oh, yes, absolutely. You see it uh, all the time. And the thing is, sometimes I feel like the artist, the paleo artist in question, is definitely trying to get something across. Like this is a, a region in which there were volcanic eruptions or perhaps they're discussing the role of volcanoes. Volcanoes, uh, the role they may have possibly played uh, according to various theories regarding extinction events. But other times, I think it's this just idea of this was this primal dangerous age in which the earth is opening up, monsters are, are walking about, feasting on each other. It's just uh, the, the world is alive with danger. I think that's correct, but I think there's also something to the thing you mentioned first, like the idea that volcanoes are sometimes invoked as one of the explanatory mechanisms for some of the extinction events that killed lots of the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And because they're thought of this way, we think about dinosaurs often like – as if we we mainly think of them in like the last moments before they were wiped from the face of the earth. That's like the defining time of their existence. They're frozen in amber uh, in the moment right before their doom. And in a strange way, that is quite literally the case about the settlements surrounding Mount Vesuvius. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the, the things about Pompeii is it is it allows us to to look into the past in ways that the remains of other ancient cities do not. 
Yeah, it's it, for that reason that at the same time that it's very grim to look at, it's also kind of magical. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, this this catastrophe in the year 79 CE that obliterated several Roman settlements around the Bay of Naples, including the city of Pompeii and the town of Herculaneum. And historians studying the subject are very lucky because we actually have access to historical documents describing the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 in extreme detail. Specifically, this is a pair of letters written by the first century Roman politician and author Pliny the Younger, who is in fact the nephew of the great Roman author and encyclopedist Pliny the Elder, whose natural history we reference on the show all the time for mm -hmm. insights on what the ancient Romans thought they knew about everything from sea monsters to the culinary virtues of lead. That's right. I feel that scarcely a month goes by that we don't reference Pliny the Elder. Uh, so it's, it's, it's great and, of course, bittersweet to uh, meet up with him again here. Right, because this, of course, is the end of the story of Pliny the Elder. He spent a lifetime collecting all of this knowledge and pseudo-knowledge about the world, but we've never discussed before how Pliny the Elder died. It was the mountain that killed him. So about these letters describing the event, uh, sometime early in the 2nd century CE, I think I've seen it placed maybe around the year 104, 105, something like that. Uh, around this time, Pliny the Younger wrote two letters to the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus to give his firsthand account of the eruption and to explain the ultimate fate of his uncle. Uh, now, these two letters are famous for their vivid description of the events. And so we wanted to put you on the ground during the eruption of Vesuvius by reading some selections from these letters. Uh, these will come from a couple of different English translations that you can easily find online. I sort of made a composite out of two different translations trying to take some of the best parts from each one. One is from a book called Volcanoes of Europe from Dunedin Academic Press from 2017 by Dogal Jaram, uh, Alwyn Scarth, and Jean-Claude Tangai. And then there's another widely used English translation by William Melmoth. So those two came together to, to create what you're about to hear. Yes, these are, are typically described as the, the oldest detailed accounts, uh, detailed firsthand accounts of a volcanic eruption. Uh, that's not to say that volcanic eruptions were not known to uh, to, to ancient peoples. They were known. Right. Uh, and then we have mention of them popping up. There's even, uh, I read, uh, there's, there's an argument uh, that Virgil's mention of an eruption of Mount Etna in the Aeneid uh, was actually uh, generated via firsthand um, observation. But even that would not be the, the level of detail that we're discussing here. Right. I, I have not found any evidence of a description of a volcanic eruption in, in literary history older than Pliny's description here that contains nearly anywhere close to the amount of detail we get. Right. Certainly nothing that has survived. Right. And probably because a lot of the people who might have been in a position to write such an account themselves did not survive. Correct. Uh, so Pliny the Younger begins his first letter by praising Tacitus's skills as a writer of history and talking about his uncle Pliny the Elder. And he, he says basically, you know, my uncle died in a misfortune, but there's a chance to redeem his legacy because if you put him in your, in your history, if his name becomes associated with the eruption of Vesuvius, it will render his name immortal. Uh, so uh, I'm going to pick up after that section of, of introduction and just uh, read from Pliny's account within his first letter. 
At the time of the great eruption, my uncle Pliny was with the fleet under his command at Mycenaeum. On the 24th of August, about one in the afternoon, my mother desired him to observe a cloud which appeared of a very unusual size and shape. He had just taken a turn in the sun, and after bathing himself in cold water and making a light luncheon, he had gone back to his books. He immediately arose and went out upon a promontory from whence he might get a better sight of this very uncommon appearance. From that distance, it was not clear from which mountain the cloud was rising, although it was found afterwards to be Vesuvius. The cloud could best be described as more like an umbrella pine than any other tree, for it rose high up like a trunk and then divided into branches. I imagine that this was because it was thrust up by the initial blast until its power weakened and it was left unsupported and spread out sideways under its own weight. Sometimes it looked light-colored, sometimes it looked mottled and dirty with the earth and cinders it had carried up. This phenomenon seemed to a man of such learning and research as my uncle extraordinary and worth further looking into. He ordered a light vessel to be got ready and gave me leave, if I liked, to accompany him. I said I had rather go on with my work, and it so happened he had himself given me something to ride out. As he was coming out of the house, he received a note from Rectina the wife of Tascus, who was in the utmost alarm at the immediate danger which threatened her, for her villa lying at the foot of Mount Vesuvius. There was no way of escape but by boat. She was terrified by the threatening danger and begged him to rescue her. He changed his plan at once, and what he had started in a spirit of scientific curiosity, he ended as a hero. You know, at this point, I always stop and I wonder, like, how did he get the note? I imagine it must have come to him across the water— Right, that maybe in a smaller boat she was able to send a note out and to ask him to come back with larger boats that she and her family could escape on. I, I imagine. I mean, the only way I mean, it would be that or by some manner of bird. Yeah. <laughs> as long as we're interjecting, I want to remind everyone here that uh, that Pliny the Elder would have been about uh, f- uh, 56 years old at this point if you're trying to picture him in your head and perhaps cast uh, um, an actor in the role. Yes, and, and the younger Pliny also says of his uncle that he was uh, – that, that he was, like, brave and stout, but he, he also says he was a quite corpulent man. So, like, he wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, fit as a fiddle to be running out into danger. But anyway, to go back to the account, uh, Pliny continues, He ordered the galleys to be put to sea, and he went himself on board with an intention of assisting not only Rectina, but the several other towns which lay thickly strewn along that beautiful coast. Hastening then to the place from whence others fled with the utmost terror, he steered his course direct to the point of danger, and with so much calmness and presence of mind as to be able to make and dictate his observations upon the motion and all the phenomena of that dreadful scene. So he's taking notes as he goes. He was now so close to the mountain that the cinders, which grew thicker and hotter the nearer he approached, fell into the ships, together with pumice stones and black pieces of burning rock shattered by the fire. They were in danger, too, not only of being aground by the sudden retreat of the sea, but also from the vast fragments which rolled down from the mountain and obstructed all the shore." Can you imagine that being out on a boat and so like the sea is first of all pulling away from the shore as you're trying to get into the shore to rescue people from the villas along the shoreline. 
so the sea's retreating, and then also stuff from the mountain is now coming down and making its way into the water. Right. I mean, it must have been like approaching a shore upon which there was a battle, only instead of two human forces engaged in battle, it is a battle between civilization and uh, the elements of the earth itself. Yeah, unreal. He continues. Here he stopped to consider whether he should turn back, for the pilot was advising retreat. Fortune favors the brave, he said. Steer to where Pomponianus is. Pomponianus lived at Testabia, a town across the Bay of Naples, which was not yet in danger, but would be threatened if the eruption spread. Pomponianus had already put his belongings into a boat to escape as soon as the contrary onshore wind changed. The wind, of course, was fully in my uncle's favor and quickly brought his boat to Stabia. My uncle calmed and encouraged his terrified friend. The more effectually to soothe his fears by seeming unconcerned himself, he ordered the drawing of a hot bath and then, after having bathed, sat down to supper with great cheerfulness or at least with every appearance of it, which is just as brave. Is that just as brave? I guess so, yeah. If you're like trying to calm other people even though you are yourself scared. Yeah, I mean, if there's only so much you can do, uh, calmness is going to help and in, in, in help to maintain a, a proper retreat. I mean, I guess to a certain extent one could uh, again, apply the military metaphor here, mm-hmm. you know, and the the military backgrounds of individuals involved. Yeah. So I guess what they're saying here is that he's stuck at the house until the winds change and they can get out by water and trying to encourage people not to panic while they're, while they're there. Uh, so Pliny continues. Meanwhile, tall, broad flames blazed from several places on Vesuvius and glared out through the darkness of the night. But my uncle, in order to soothe the apprehensions of his friend, assured him it was only the burning of the villages, which the country people had abandoned to the flames. After this, he retired to rest, and it is most certain that he was so little disquieted as to fall into a sound sleep, for his breathing, which on account of his corpulence was rather heavy and sonorous, was heard by the attendants outside his door. But eventually, the courtyard outside began to fill with so much ash and pumice that if he had stayed in his room, he would never have been able to get out. So he was awakened, and he went to Pomponianus and the rest of the company, who had stayed up all night and were feeling too anxious to think of going to bed. They consulted together whether it would be most prudent to trust to the houses, which now rocked from side to side with frequent and violent concussions as though shaken from their very foundations, or fly to the open fields where the stones and cinders, though light and porous, fell in large showers and threatened destruction. In this choice of dangers, they resolved for the fields, a resolution which, while the rest of the company were hurried into by their fears, my uncle embraced upon cool and deliberate consideration. They went out then, having pillows tied upon their heads with napkins, for this was their whole defense against the storm of stones that fell around them. And I have to admit, that is that is a slightly comical mental image yes, it to is. put in your head. Well, it's it's like both at the same time. It's like funny, but it's also so grim and so real. Like you can yeah. imagine like, okay, so the house, you're, you're afraid the house is going to collapse. So you've got to get away from the house. But outside the house, stuff is – rocks are falling from the sky. So what do you do? You know, like yeah. it's not safe to be under a roof. So like they literally were like, okay, we've got to improvise helmets. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. It is It is both a little bit comic but also terrifying. I mean this whole situation is is terrifying. And, and I think one thing to keep in mind too as we read this account is again thinking about to what extent Pliny is trying to manage 
evacuation and, and to, to, to manage their response, a calm response to this catastrophe that's taking place because that is going to be vital not only to this scenario but to other scenarios and even future scenarios uh, uh, regarding uh, uh, the, the clash of human civilization and volcanic activity. Yes. Uh, and you say he's having to manage an evacuation. He's not only having to do that. He's having to improvise management yes. of an evacuation because they don't know what the best practices are. Right. So anyway, it goes on to the conclusion of the letter here. Uh, so they've gone out with the pillows tied to their heads. And then Pliny the Younger says, It was now daylight everywhere else, but there a deeper darkness prevailed than in the thickest night, and they were forced to light their torches and lamps. My uncle went down to the shore to see if there was any chance of escape by sea, but the waves were still far too high. There my uncle, laying himself down upon a sailcloth which was spread for him, called twice for some cold water, which he drank. Then immediately the flames, preceded by a strong whiff of sulfur, dispersed the rest of the party and obliged him to rise. He raised himself up with the assistance of his two servants and instantly fell down dead, suffocated, as I conjecture, by some gross and noxious vapor, having always had a weak throat, which was often inflamed. As soon as it was light again, which was not till the third day after this melancholy accident, his body was found entire and without any marks of violence upon it, in the dress in which he fell, and looking more like a man asleep than dead. So Pliny the Elder dies here on the shore, but not everybody in his party does because, of course, like the servants and friends are later able to report back to Pliny the Younger what happened to his uncle. Right. And, uh, and of course, Pliny the Younger mentions uh, his his ailing lungs as being a possible uh, reason that he succumbed to these fumes. It has also been hypothesized that he could have actually, even though it, by all appearances it might have had something to do with the, uh, the fumes, it also could have simply been a stroke or a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he, obviously, this is a high-stress, high-exertion situation, mm-hmm. um, and, and he wasn't a young man anymore. Uh, but so Pliny then ends his letter by saying uh, he witnessed a lot of other stuff, but he didn't include it in the letter because Tacitus originally had only asked how his uncle had died. And apparently Tacitus wrote back and wanted to know more. He wanted to know details about what the younger Pliny and his mother had encountered when they stayed behind at Mycenaeum. And that makes for the content of the second letter. So maybe we should take a break and then when we come back, we can read from Pliny's second letter about the eruption. All right, we're back. So before the break, we were discussing how Pliny the Elder died, and now we are essentially going to explore how Pliny the Younger lived. Yes. Uh, So now remember in the first letter, Pliny the Younger and his mother stayed behind at Mycenaeum while the Elder took the fleet out to help people who were further along the shore. And so Pliny picks up his narrative like this. He says, After my uncle left us, I studied, dined, and went to bed, but slept only fitfully. We had had earth tremors for several days, which were not especially alarming because they happened so often in Campania. But that night they were so violent that everything felt as if it were being shaken and turned over. My mother came hurrying to my room, and we sat together in the forecourt facing the sea. As I was at that time but 18 years of age, I know not whether I should call my behavior in this dangerous juncture courage or folly, but I looked up to Livy and amused myself with turning over that author and even making extracts from him, as if I had been perfectly at my leisure. (laughs) 
Though it was now morning, the light was still exceedingly faint and doubtful. The buildings around were already tottering, and we would have been in danger in our confined space if our house had fallen down. This made us decide to leave town. We were chased after by a panic-stricken crowd that chose to follow someone else's judgment rather than decide anything for themselves. I love that detail that he's like, he's trying to act like he's not afraid, so he's just going on with his studies. He's mm-hmm. like, I'll, I'll just keep reading Livy. I'm going to make some notes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, again, this is terrifying scene of like, every, no one knows what to do. And yeah. so, like, of course they're going to follow um, – uh, uh, plenty here, just to, like right. like somebody who looks like they they know what needs to be done and knows know where they need to go. Uh, they're going to fall in behind them. Well, also he he was the uh, of a family of military command. Yeah. Right? So his uncle would have been known as the commander of the fleet there at the bay. Uh, so I think if the relatives of the commander st- suddenly start leaving town, everybody is going to see that and be like, we probably need to get out too. Yeah, I, I would I would say as you know the the comeback here would be, of course we're following you and not thinking for ourselves you're the military like you're you're our, our, you're the one to follow yeah and we're not going to trust our own judgment here you are the navy but again th- this would not have been a time when people had like a list of safety procedures right. they could look up for a volcanic eruption i mean you you have no precedent you had no idea what to do right because as we'll as we'll discuss uh, as we get into this topic more this volcano had not erupted in quite a while. It had at the very least been centuries. Yeah. Now, Pliny picks up with his narrative. He says, Being at a convenient distance from the houses, we stood still in the midst of a most dangerous and dreadful scene. The carriages we had ordered began to lurch to and fro, although the ground was flat and we could not keep them still even when we wedged their wheels with stones. Then we saw the sea sucked back apparently by a convulsion of the earth, and many sea creatures were left stranded on the dry sand. From the other direction, over the land, a dreadful black cloud was torn by gushing flames and great tongues of fire like much-magnified lightning. Soon afterwards, the cloud began to descend and cover the sea. It had already surrounded and concealed the island of Capri and the promontory of Mycenaeum, My mother begged me to leave her and escape as best I could, but I absolutely refused, taking her by the hand and making her to hurry along with me. Ash was already falling by now, though in no great quantity. Then I turned and saw a thick black cloud advancing over the land behind us like a flood. Let us leave the road while we still can see, I said, or we will be knocked down and trampled by the crowd. We had scarcely sat down when darkness came upon us, not such as we have when the sky is cloudy or when there is no moon, but that of a room when it is shut up and all the lamps put out. Can you imagine that? So this is daytime now, mm-hmm. and, but the it is not only dark like a night, it is darker than night. Yeah, this is, this is the darkness at noon type situation, exactly. So he goes on to describe the terror of the scene. He says, You might hear the shrieks of women, the screams of children, and the shouts of men, some calling for their children, others for their parents, others for their husbands, and seeking to recognize each other by the voices that replied, one lamenting his own fate, another that of his family, some praying to die from the very fear of dying, some lifting their hands to the gods, but the greater part convinced that there were now no gods at all, and that the final endless night of which we had heard had come upon the world. Among these, there were some who augmented the real terrors by others imaginary or willfully invented. I remember some who declared that one part of Mycenaeum had fallen, that another was on fire. 
It was false, but they found people to believe them. So just chaos is reigning. Uh, Misinformation is flying. The world is dark and uh, full of terror. The day is dark and full of terrors. Yeah. (laughs) All right. He continues. It now grew rather lighter, which we imagined to be the forerunner of an approaching burst of flames, as in truth it was, rather than the return of day. However, the fire fell at a distance from us. Then again, we were immersed in a thick darkness, and a heavy shower of ashes rained upon us, which we were obliged every now and then to stand up, to shake off. Otherwise, we should have been crushed and buried in the heap. I might have boasted that during all this scene of horror, not a sigh or expression of fear escaped me, but in truth, my support was grounded in that miserable, though mighty, consolation that all mankind were involved in the same calamity and that I was perishing with the world itself. That line has haunted me ever since I first read it, that he says he's not afraid because he knew it wasn't just him dying. It was the end of the entire world. And finally, he he concludes the letter saying, At last, the darkness paled into smoke or cloud, and the real daylight returned, but the sun shone with a lurid light as during an eclipse. Every object that presented itself to our weakened eyes seemed changed, being covered deep with ashes as if with snow. We returned to Mycenaeum, where we refreshed ourselves as well as we could, and passed an anxious night between hope and fear, though indeed with a much larger share of the latter, for the earthquake still continued, while many frenzied persons ran up and down, heightening their own and their friends' calamities by terrible predictions. So, first of all, I think those letters are just amazing literary documents. Uh, But also I wanted to say there is a painting that I've seen online several times that captures the spirit of those letters pretty well for me. It's called The Destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum by the English romantic painter John Martin. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, we've presented you with the drama of what is happening. Uh, Let's provide a little background just about this region, uh, about Pompeii and some of these other cities that we were uh, name dropping. Right. Uh, What was going on in the area before the 79 CE eruption of Vesuvius? Uh, So, the part of Italy immediately surrounding Mount Vesuvius, the the larger region here is known as Campania, which uh, Pliny makes reference to because he says, you know, uh, we were used to earthquakes in Campania. It's kind of a geologically active region. So, when the little earthquakes began, we weren't too worried at first until it, you know, until it started rocking the house back and forth. Um, and so Campania translates into, I think, roughly into the word countryside. Apparently, it was once known as the Campania Felix or the happy countryside. And it's this region in the southwestern part of the Italian peninsula uh, along the Tyrrhenian Sea. And its capital is, of course, the coastal city of Naples or Napoli in Italian. This is where the pizza comes from. Is it? I think maybe it is. Or at least a famous variety of pizza comes from here. There's Neapolitan and Neapolitan. I'm not sure – I don't know the relationship between those two words. You're thinking about ice cream, perhaps? Oh, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to, this, we'll have to come back to it on our other show, Invention. Just write in and shame us. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, so today, Campania is a highly sought-after tourist destination, in large part due to the natural beauty of its coastline, including stretches like the, the, the famous Amalfi Coast. Uh, if you've seen these gorgeous photos of like little antique towns nestled into the steeply descending hillsides between looming cliffs all covered in 
trees and lush greenery, uh, this kind of stuff along the waterfront in Italy, I think there's a very good chance that you are looking at images of the Amalfi Coast. But it turns out that the tourism industry is not new in Campania. Even in the first century during the Roman Empire, places especially around the Bay of Naples were extremely fashionable as vacation resorts for the rich elite of Rome and other capitals of the empire. And again, you just look up pictures of this place and you instantly understand why. It is a place of, of, of absolutely gorgeous natural formations and vegetation. The coastline is pristine and striking. I mean, I want to go there right now. Yes, yes. Looking at, at photos of this region, uh, which, which is still a, a, a vacation destination, like you said, uh, it, it looks very inviting. Uh, but that's not all, of course. Campania also has a reputation as a rich and fertile farmland, both then and now. And it's even today, uh, it's very densely populated, but it's also a center of agricultural food production for Italy. Yes, lots of orchards, lots of uh, vineyards. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, probably the most famous point of destruction within this this sort of broad cone of destruction from the Vesuvius eruption is the city of Pompeii. It was a city that had been settled by seafaring Greeks almost a thousand years before, like in the 8th century BCE. And then for several centuries after that was a city controlled variously by the Greeks and the Etruscans, sometimes trading off. Uh, it only fell under Roman control during the second century BCE, before the empire. This would have been during the period of the Roman Republic. Uh, and then by 79 CE, Pompeii had somewhere between like 10,000 and 20,000 inhabitants. It was wealthy. It was thriving like other places in Campania. Pompeii was a resort for the famous and the powerful families of Rome with expensive villas, bathhouses, restaurants, brothels, it, you know, kind of a kind of an aspen of ancient Rome. All right. Uh, the, the one problem, of course, that is that all of this was built up in the region surrounding Vesuvius. And, uh, and of course, Vesuvius at the time uh, was, was slumbering or seemed to be slumbering. But uh, then in uh, 79 CE, it awakens. And, you know, I would say it's not – we can come back to this later if you want. But it's not necessarily just a coincidence that like this is a place of great beauty and agricultural production. So it draws a lot of people and just happens to be near a dangerous active volcano. There might be some reasons that both of these things are true. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, we can go ahead and touch on, on these facts really quickly uh, because uh, first of all, we mentioned how fertile uh, the, the area is, how mm-hmm. well things grow even on the, the slopes of Vesuvius itself. And that is because of this rich volcanic soil. Yes, and I think it's also possible to argue that some of the geologic features that that make it kind of risky in terms of volcanic activity also contribute to the beauty of its coastline. Absolutely, I mean the 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 volcanic activity is the 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 engine that formed the land that people are occupying, that people are growing uh, uh, crops upon, etc. Now, on the day of the eruption, it's estimated that uh, of the between 10,000 and 20,000 inhabitants of Pompeii, about 2,000 inhabitants were probably killed. Uh, And when you add up all those who perished uh, in other Vesuvian settlements like the towns of Herculaneum, Oplantis, and Stabia, Stabia was where uh, Pliny the Elder sailed to help his friend. Somewhere close to maybe like 16,000 people died in total, though it's very difficult to have accurate numbers. But one thing that makes Pompeii special is 
Because of the way it was buried under the ash and ejecta of the eruption, Pompeii became at once both obscure and illuminating. Obscure, of course, because it was literally hidden from investigation. It sort of vanished from history as if wiped off the face of the earth because it had been paved over by the volcano. But at the same time, uh, it, it kind of became a bright and transparent window into life in ancient Roman times because under all of that dust, the city was almost perfectly preserved since it had been buried and erased from history. There's no way for the remains of the city to be disturbed. And it was also very democratic in its uh, preservation of the dead. Yeah. Uh, so it's one of these great examples where we, we get a little insight into just how daily life worked in this city uh, before the eruption. Yeah, many people are just found uh, presumably lying dead exactly where they were when the calamity hit. And so the city basically stayed that way until amateur excavation of the of this geologically paved over site began around 1748, an event that is sometimes referred to as the birth of modern archaeology. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break. But when we come back, we are going to continue our exploration by looking at the volcanic eruption itself. All right, we're back. Okay, so we've gotten the ground-level view of what was happening on the day of the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 CE. But what do we know now looking back with the scientific lens? What, what do we think probably happened on that day in geological terms? All right, well, let's, let's back up a little bit and just talk about the basic idea of a volcano. A volcano, of course, is just a rupture in a planet's crust. But there are, are various types of volcanoes depending on their location, their history, and the, uh, the underlying activity. Uh, fun fact, though, the word volcano derives from the volcanic isle of Volcano, named for Vulcan, the Roman god of fire. Uh, the Greeks uh, knew this uh, island by other names, but they also considered it the foundry of Hephaestus. Basically the equivalent of Vulcan. Yes. Uh, the, the, like the forge god of sparks and banging. Yeah. <laughs> So, so again, you know, the ancient peoples definitely knew of volcanoes and they were remembered at least in, uh, in the construction of myths and the naming of places. Mm. Now, Vesuvius itself is considered a Soma stratovolcano. Um, it's also uh, considered a, you know, a complex volcano. Uh, so let's talk about what this means. First, we'll talk about the, the Soma part. So if you were to travel back 400,000 years or so, uh, you would not find Mount Vesuvius at all. Rather, you'd find Mount Soma. Hmm. So Mount Soma un underwent various eruptions, uh, and we have to remember that volcanoes are places of violent change. And due to these violent eruptions, Mount Soma eventually collapsed into what is known as a caldera. So this occurs when a particularly violent eruption empties the underlying magma chamber of a volcano, making it impossible for it to support its own weight. All right. So, um, again, it's like the volcano just has erupted so much and it, it grew so much, erupted so much that it's just caved in on itself. It's just destroyed itself. It's like if you, you were to empty out all of the molten lava from your molten lava cake and then the cake just collapses. Right. All you have are like the edges of the cake that form like uh, like ring mountain around a center. It's like a crater. Yeah. Um, and this is where we get that classic image of what a volcano usually looks like. If you draw a cartoon volcano, you're probably drawing a ring-shaped caldera where the, the top of the mountain has collapsed after some eruption in the past. Right. 
But even though the 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 the, uh, the mountain itself has collapsed, uh, the underlying volcanic activity is still there. So magma and volcanic gases continue to build, and this can result in a few different varieties of caldera. The center can swell back up into what is known as a resurgent dome, like with uh, Yellowstone uh, and its uh, you know its so-called supervolcano. Uh, but in the case of Vesuvius, another volcanic cone, and this is the Mount of Vesuvius, rises up in the center of the Soma caldera. And this is why we call this type of volcano a Soma volcano. So the remnants, again, of, of the old mountain, the caldera, are still around it. And uh, the Soma caldera is also sometimes referred to as just Mount Soma today. But again, it is the remnant of the old mountain, and in the center is Vesuvius. That's hard. I mean, volcano inside a volcano. Right. And again, it's important to know, yeah, Vesuvius certainly in geologic time is a, is a young volcano. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what sort of volcano is Vesuvius itself? Well, remember we used the, the, the description, a Soma stratovolcano. So a stratovolcano is a steep conical volcano built from many layers of lava, ash, pumice, and tephra. Uh, tephra, that's a, a pyroclast or ejected fragments from the volcano that have fallen to the ground. Uh, all of this from various eruptions building up, uh, building up this volcano. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned it was a young volcano. Yes, relatively young. Again, in terms of uh, ge- geologic time, mm-hmm. uh, certainly uh, human time is a different matter, which we'll get into. Uh, during its life, it's had periods of activity and inactivity. Its most recent period of activity as of this recording was between 1913 and 1944 CE. Uh, and today, it's uh, you know it's 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 inactive, you, rather inactive. You can actually hike up to the top. Uh, its eruptions, however, were known in ancient times. But at the time of its eruption in 79 CE, it had been inactive for at least 295 years. It uh, was reputed to have erupted in 217 BCE based on the writings of Sillus Italicus, but a great many modern writers have rejected this. Uh, We know it sustained a particularly powerful eruption during the second millennium BCE. This is the Avellino eruption, which decimated the Bronze Age settlements in the area. Uh, But uh, again, it's ultimately a situation where we don't have a lot of information about its its activity in pre-79 CE uh, in that time period, but we can presume that it had been centuries since its last eruption. Avellino is the name of another town nearby Naples. It's actually, I remember that because it's the town that Tony Soprano's family comes from. Oh, okay. (laughs) At any rate, enough time had passed for humans in this region to lose their immediate fear of the mountain. Um, And so cities encroached upon its domain. Gardens and vineyards popped up around it. The children of Prometheus grew bold in the silence of Vesuvius. Uh, but again, it's it's clear that they had not really completely forgotten what Vesuvius had been capable of in the past. Myths of giants battling Hercules, uh, you know, still remained about the mountain. Uh, there were geologic connections that linked that clearly linked Vesuvius to Mount Etna, which uh, was certainly active and was described erupting again in Virgil's Aeneid, which I referred to earlier. So it's not like people. Did not know what had happened here in the past or what a volcano looked like. I mean, there was, it was, the, the world wasn't completely ignorant of what it could do. You know, it's kind of weird. It's, a, it's one of these tragedies of time scales that humans are, I feel like, almost constantly facing mm-hmm. off against, where 
if you look at uh, the activity of a volcano across geologic time, you just see it's pretty regular, you know, pretty frequently this thing is going to erupt. But then you zoom into human historical time and the eruptions are not quite frequent enough to discourage settlement because our memories are not that long. Like a few hundred years seems like, a you know, an eternity to an individual person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whole whole lives will pass uh, during the, the periods of relative inactivity of a volcano. Uh, in many of these cases. So, you know, we don't know everything about the uh, the 79 CE eruption, uh, a.k.a. the uh, Plinaean eruption named for Pliny. But, but we still know quite a bit uh, as it was, again, the first volcanic eruption to be described in detail. We have uh, Pliny the Younger's excellent descriptions of uh, the pre-eruption quakes, the eruption itself, the ashfall, pyroclastic flows, and the resulting mild tsunami in the Bay of Naples. Uh, it is estimated that the column of ash that rose up into the sky towered some 20 miles or 32 kilometers and that it ejected one cubic mile or four cubic kilometers of ash in just something like 19 hours. Ten feet of uh, tephra fell on Pompeii. A pyroclastic flow buried Herculaneum under 75 feet or 23 meters of ash. And we'll eventually uh, look at what all of this meant for the humans who resided in the impacted cities as well, like on a biological level. I think we'll have to get into that in the next episode. Yeah. It's also been estimated that the eruption itself uh, would have uh, carried the thermal energy of 100,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs. And uh, all of this would have lasted roughly two days. Vesuvius has erupted some three dozen times since, uh, sometimes with deadly results. Uh, mud flows and lava flows from a 1631 eruption killed some uh, 3,500 people. And today, uh, as before uh, the 79 CE eruption, vineyards and orchards cover the slopes of the mountain. Uh, there's an, there's a, an enormous population surrounding uh, the, the volcano today. I believe the area is like the most densely populated part of Italy. Uh, right. I've also seen it uh, described as the, as the most densely populated area surrounding a volcano on Earth. But again, this, yeah, people – but it's beautiful. You look at these pictures, it's beautiful. There's actually a tremendous amount of growth there. Again, the soil is very fertile. Um, and before the eruption of 1631, during a very long period of inactivity, forests uh, are actually said to have grown in the crater and you would have found three lakes there as well. Wow. So, yeah, given the the amount of time, the, the great amount of time relative to the to human experience and even the, the lives of plants mm -hmm. that transpires between eruptions, I mean, you can have a, a great greening of the mountain occur. Oh, man, I wish I could see what that was like to have the forests and the lakes down in there because I, I love that kind of thing. I, I don't know if you've been to Crater Lake in Oregon. I have not. Uh, no. Well, you, you've probably seen images of it at least. It's absolutely gorgeous, one of the most amazing, beautiful places I've ever been. But I think it's exactly that contrast of like of of uh, this clear, still water and all these forests and life just flooding in to this place where there was catastrophic destruction, you know, some number of centuries ago. Right. And then the, and then the humans come in as well. And there's probably something elegant to be said about just like the, the nature of of the human experience, too. You know, like even though something terrible happened here, humans have a way in many cases, of, of moving forward through it and and finding a way to make a life there. I know it's not this way, but it almost it, it seems almost malicious. Like the, the the volcano with this fertile volcanic soil is just sort of like baiting you. Yeah, it it is like leaving out this bait to attract you into the geologic trap. 
Sorry, I'm not, I know that's anthropomorphizing. It's it's not the volcano's fault. It doesn't mean to hurt you. <laughs> yeah, and I think even Tolkien didn't say Mount Doom itself was evil, right? It was just uh, – But Mount Doom is more what you'd expect. It's in Mordor, which is a place where even the air, the very air you breathe is a toxic fume and nothing grows there. And, you know, it's just like – it's just this blasted landscape. I mean, no, this is the case where the area right around this volcano that could erupt again is, is extremely beautiful and – fertile and inviting to life. Yeah. All right. On that note, we're going to go ahead and call it for this episode, but we will be back in the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind to continue our discussions uh, regarding Vesuvius. We're going to get into uh, uh, some of the sort of forensic evidence of what happened to the people in Pompeii. Uh, We're going to get into – we're going to discuss the possible uh, remains of Pliny the Elder, and uh, we'll also just discuss the continued threat posed by volcanoes to settled regions today and, you know, and some some about, uh, you know, what we what we're prepared to do or unprepared to do about their eruptions. I can't wait. I've been wanting to talk about this for so long. I'm so glad we finally got here. Yeah, and I think it may kick off even further um, uh, further episodes that deal with uh, volcanoes and uh, and human history. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of uh, rich there's a lot of rich soil uh, <laughs> that uh, that is left behind by these uh, these often catas- cataclysmic uh, events. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Um, if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, that will definitely redirect you to the iHeart page for our show, where you can subscribe, you can download, uh, etc. And uh, wherever you get the show, we encourage you to do those things. Rate, review, subscribe. Uh, these are uh, the uh, the things you can do to help the show, as well as just telling a, a friend in the real world. Uh, just spread the word. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.